Dr. Zimple is out of town, and we scheduled it so that he would speak one night. I would do tonight, this evening, as we begin our study tonight dealing with a topic that we're going to address. I want you to remember that this series that we are entitling over the next 12 Sunday evenings in which we meet is going to be we hope, we intend, extremely practical, in other words, down-to-earth, helping us get victory in areas, while also offering us the opportunity to study a few areas of theology doctrine, some of those being deeper, and, and sometimes some doctrines that we oftentimes just flat-out overlook or take for granted. We'll do part of that this evening. Uh, and so uh, I encourage you to take out a pencil if you can and follow along. You need, need to jot some things down. Tonight we're going to, as we discuss some theology, I really want to divide this handout, as it were, into three sections, practical sections. And I'm going to read here in a moment just a, a few quotations. The first section, and as we talk about our respectable sins, I'm just going to refer to, for lack of a better expression, as in life, in our Christian life, you and I experience almost on a daily basis to a d- one degree or another, one level or another, an exasperation. And it really is exasperating as we try to live successfully, victoriously for the Lord and try to be a testimony. And there is a frustration and exasperation. We're going to see why, because God has an expectation, and that we'll deal with secondly. Be ye holy. Finish it with me. Be ye holy, for I am holy. And as we look in 1 Peter 1.16, and as we speak of that verse, uh, there is an expectation God has for us. With that expectation, I ask the question, why? Why is He expecting that? That's a high demand by a holy God of sinful people who have yet to be glorified, and we'll talk about that. And we'll see then, ultimately, we come to an explanation of what God is doing since we've been saved in our life. As we begin, would you follow along? I'm going to read a couple of these paragraphs to initiate our study this evening. First Peter 1, verses 14, 15, and 16. We're going to start out with some New Testament passages, Paul speaking in Romans. Then we're going to go back and look a little bit at Genesis, work our way through and see the totality of Scripture, because that is the ancient Word, the Word that God has for you and me to conform us to His image, to make us and transform the re- us in the renewing of our mind to become more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. But all that while, I'm frustrated with ongoing sin in my life, you and I say, almost on a daily basis. And so, as we deal with those sin areas, they've become acceptable. They've almost become so acceptable they're social, even within our Christian community, whether it be anger or gossip or envy, and we see them in commercials, we see them on TV, we see them among our heroes, we see them and discuss even as we say, um, I, uh, I need to pray about this, it's at home, it's part of our conversations, whatever it is. They become so acceptable anymore that we refer to them almost as respectable sins. That's just who we are, that's who I am, that's part of our nature, and there's the problem. It's just part of our nature. As obedient children, Peter would write, do not be conformed to the former lusts, that word former significant, which were yours in your ignorance prior to the knowledge of Christ. But like the Holy One who called you, 
Be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy. Why? For I am holy. In his commentary on Romans years ago, uh, Alva J. McLean wrote these words as he was beginning the commentary where he says, Paul, and then just like he does to the Corinthians, to those at Rome, to those at Corinth, called to be saints. McLean would write, a Christian whose life is not what it ought to be often gives the excuse, I don't pretend to be a saint. I love this quote, by the way. It doesn't matter, he writes, what you pretend to be. If you are a Christian, you are a saint. The Greek word is hagios. It's used of the word holy. When it's applied to people, it's translated saint. It's not an evidence of humility to refuse to be called a saint. It is not humility to take the name that God has given us, but unbelief. Masquerading in the role of humility. Does the world expect anything of a sinner? Not a thing. Does the world expect anything of a saint? It certainly does. If a man that has taken this position falls, every man will jeer at him saying, there is your saint. To accept the position of saint demands living in conformity with that position. Those who do not want to take that position know that they do not intend to live in accordance with that position, and therefore they refuse to take it. God never goes to a sinner and tells him to try to attain to sainthood. No. He picks us out of the mud and says, you are a saint. We are not making believe. We are holy and must live in accordance with our position. This is never attained by striving, but by taking possession of sainthood, remembering our position, and then thirdly, living in accordance with it. That's a good paragraph, isn't it? First time I ever read that, I said, now, that describes a lot about excusing the way we sometimes conduct ourselves or the way we live. After all, I'm not a saint. God doesn't ex- The answer is, yeah, He does. He expects us because He calls us saints. I used a quote, and I've used it before too, but Stephen actually used it as well when he was preaching through in James. Speaking of, and oftentimes some of the great novels that we read in English literature back in high school or in college, and we read those in those English courses that we took, whether it be Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Gulliver's Travels, they were written either as political commentaries of the day or sometimes they were written about the struggle. One of my favorite of all is Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. And you read then of anthropology and the sin struggle that human beings face. Well, Robert Louis Stevenson, Scottish author, dreamed one night of the plot of one of his novels. In fact, in the dream, he ended up crying out so loudly that his wife woke him up. He got on to her for doing so. He had dreamed that he was actually transforming into an evil man. And over the next week, he would pan a novel that became, or a story that became one of the classics, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. The book actually, or the novel at first when it was written, was almost a short story. The story is told through the eyes of an attorney and friend of Dr. Jekyll, a friend who becomes increasingly worried about the strange behavior, long periods of the isolation of his friend. Unknown to him and the rest of society, Dr. Jekyll had created a potion that allowed him to transform himself into a Mr. Hyde. He was able to prowl around town pursuing any kind of evil he desired. He would even murder. 
He's referred to as a man without a conscience. He's able to live a life of sin without ruining the reputation and character of the esteemed Dr. Jekyll. The trouble is that the character of this evil man will grow stronger and stronger until Dr. Jekyll transforms into Mr. Hyde without even drinking the potion anymore. Dr. Jekyll becomes terrified and unable to control Mr. Hyde from taking over at will. And the evil side of Dr. Jekyll is gaining more and more power over the moral side of the good doctor. Finally, Dr. Jekyll writes a letter explaining the battle and then takes his own life in order to end the evil of Mr. Hyde. In his dying moments, he transforms into Mr. Hyde, who can do nothing to save himself. When the authorities arrive, they find him dead, wearing the clothing of Dr. Jekyll. The mystery is solved by a letter which explains that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are one and the same man. You ever feel that way sometimes? You and I do. It's a battle. The battle between, as it were, good and evil. Our passions, our will. I want to do this, but something's within me. And it's even more frustrating. That's why I'm calling this first section an exasperation. A frustration, a disgust, sometimes despair, disappointment. What's going on within me? It's even more frustrating for the Christian because we know differently. It's a battle between the flesh and our new nature in Christ, sometimes described as the old man, the new man. Paul would write, "'For that which I am doing I do not understand.'" For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. Then he would go on to say, this is in Romans 7 and further, For the good that I wish, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the very one who wishes to do good. Romans 7, 20 and 21. Even the Apostle Paul struggled, and he did as well, just like you and me, and experienced frustration, exasperation, to the point that he would declare just a few verses later, wretched man that I am, and then asked, who will set me free from the body of this death? How many times, even as Dr. Zempel last week used an illustration, does a person who is struggling with some lust or with despair or with anger or with controlling his tongue or with pride say, Lord, I thought I had a victory only to find that in the next days or weeks that same cycle starts up again. We find ourselves in a moment where we yield and then we realize and are under such conviction because of the guilt that rages within us. David, Psalm 51, and then we confess it only to find, and there's then a relief, and Lord, I want to live like this to find out we repeat that again. I promise, honey, I will not, I won't raise my voice, and we do it, and we say, I'm sorry. Ever happened to you? The motivation behind this brief series then stems from a growing awareness that those of us who see themselves as conservative evangelicals may have become so preoccupied with many of the major sins of society around us that we've actually lost sight of the need to deal with our more refined or subtle sins. This week we received a call because 
we were in a meeting, I believe it was Tuesday morning, wasn't it? You were, we were in a staff meeting, and we received a call that the Senate here, the House on Monday, had voted in our state legislature to bring forth an amendment uh, or to bring it before the people of the state of North Carolina. And they decided not to do it in the fall, but to do it in May so that they could separate it politically and keep this just as a major issue in the month of May, and that is whether marriage in the state of North Carolina would be between a man and a woman, and the House voted yes. Tuesday morning it was before the Senate, and the 50-plus members of our state Senate were meeting right in the chambers here then in downtown Raleigh, and we received word that our state senator from this area who had the day before said he was going to vote, yes, let's take this to the people and vote on it and let the people of the state make the decision and vote, had changed his mind somewhere in Monday afternoon or evening, and word had gotten out that he was going to, well, they were going to vote no, and if they now are just on the verge of not having a two-thirds, then what was going to happen is this would, it wouldn't let the people, they could then make the decision in the courts and not the people of the state goes to the people, it becomes an opportunity for us to say, this constitutes marriage. So we got the call in a staff meeting, and four of us, four pastors, we, they said, could you come on down and talk to the senator and let him know you're praying? And, then, and so we did. And um, several of us went, went and spent an hour there listening in the Senate chamber, sitting just a few feet above the senators as they were discussing some of their discussion was disgusting. And uh, so they were doing that, and then they cast the vote, and our senator changed his mind back to yes. And so it carried, and now it's going to become a vote of the people for this amendment that would become part of our state. And quite a few people in our church are very active in different groups that want to see morality in our state and in our government reign. And biblicism and rightness, and in a sense, common sense prevail. But um, as I was, I had a fly out to the Midwest and back this week as well, and while I was doing that um, yesterday in the airplane, I was thinking, we spent a lot of time on part of Tuesday. We, uh, we ended a meeting quickly, dashed downtown, got parked, um, spent time there, then time meeting the senators, talking to a few of them afterwards, doing all that and heading back and sort of felt, yeah, we, we, we helped to at least address a, what we perceive as a social sin, a major sin, homosexuality in understanding marriage. And I, I was thinking, I wonder if we would go to that creative effort of times dealing with some of these other sins. That's what this is about, all right? To what extent would we do that? Someone calls and says, we've got to vote. We need to do this. This is almost a crisis moment. And we did. We kind of dropped things and, and, and made that. A, a, but do some of the things where we lose a temper at work, do you see that now as a crisis moment with a fellow employee? Do you stop everything? Go, I've got to make this right. I've got, I got to stop right now and go and talk with her and just make this right. I, I, I can't continue working unless I take care of this. I don't know that we would go to that kind of a length. So, though the title sounds negative, dark, pessimistic, 
This series is actually one of hope. We are never to wallow hopelessly in our sins. Instead, there is the good news of the gospel and of the grace of God. As we put here, God has dealt with both the guilt of our sin and its dominion over us. We want to address that a little bit. We'll be actually be addressing that every week. We need the good news of the power of the, of, of the gospel and of Christ, not only for salvation, but also to enable us to deal with the ongoing activity of sins in our lives the good news that we find in God's Word every day. I'm actually going to hurry through this, but there's a lot here, and I thought I would do a little bit of theology um, since that's my field, and when I get an opportunity to ever slip it in, I do, all right? Uh, Normally, much of my my life is consumed right now with just ongoing matters of our church, but then I also get, uh, and for many, many years, my life's been consumed with theology and the teaching of it, and so there's an opportunity in a series, and since we're putting up the series, go, oh, I'm going to teach one, so it slips it in. Actually, that's not it. There's something more. Why would God tell us, be ye holy, for I am holy? There's an expectation of something that's very, very ancient, very old. It actually goes back to creation. It's sort of the because. In other words, what does God desire of me, of you, of believers? And why would He desire that? Ultimately, What this study is about is known or falls under the doctrine, not of sin, but of the doctrine of salvation, but in the particular area we call sanctification. Or as Paul, let's go back to the biblical expression again, would write in Romans 8, for those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, the things of the Spirit... However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, which He does in all of us as God's children. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Instead, the implication is we are to live to the what? Spirit. All of us understand that sanctification, sanctus, vacare, to make holy, refers to spiritual maturation, maturity from the time we become a child of God at regeneration, at salvation, to the time of glorification. You and I are in the intervening period from the time that we were saved until we are glorified. So in this time, we are to be becoming holy, sanctified. Sanctus facare, sanctification. Paul would write, Then I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies in this period, this time between now and glorification, presented a living sacrifice, in other words, offered up, holy, there it is again, acceptable unto God, which is, considering what He's done for you, your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world. Well, everybody does it. This is just part of human nature. No, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove work out what is good and acceptable and the perfect will of God. And how does 
that transformation by the, this renewing of your mind take place. Paul says, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. This is really, this study tonight is ultimately sort of a, a lesson in the sense of where we want to get to in our discussion by the time we get into mid-December and we conclude. Okay? And we're going to be working toward that starting then after next week. We're just going to deal with one of these sins week by week and just take one and we'll just get right down and get practical with it week by week. And so this week as we're laying out some of that theology, there's some heavy-duty stuff here that Paul is telling us to do and to incorporate into our lives. And as you look at that, for most of us, this is the kind of stuff that you read on those words right there. And unless a series is preached through it, as Stephen did years ago through Romans, but unless we give in-depth study to it, when you have your personal study during the time, it just kind of, well, it's, it's heavy duty, and you just, let's get down to the more practical. And you just kind of, that's kind of boring. It shouldn't be boring at all. It should be life invigorating but it demands some deep meditation. And there, by the way, is a word we've long stopped doing. The idea of... When's the, when is the last time you read the Word of God and then spent a half hour meditating? I mean, do you have a meditation time? By the way, it's in the imperative in the New Testament. Give yourself to meditation. Who in the world does meditation other than weirdos? You know, that. remember how... It, but, I mean, who does meditation? I mean, seriously, do you do that? We ought to. But in this fast-paced, work-a-day world, the life in which you and I live... I used to have one of those door hangers, and I actually have one printed, and I thought I'd hang it on my office sometimes. Do not disturb. You've seen them. Hotels, offices, everything. Do not disturb. And underneath it, I have... I am meditating, all right? I've put it on my door. Let me tell you, it doesn't work. It's just, people just, when they see that, they come in and go, what do you mean you're meditating? Okay, just that, because we don't even, we don't even live in that kind of a world anymore. And with now with an iPad and a phone and a computer, everything follows you and me all day. But as you think on deeper theology and what Paul, as he was reflecting back and the Spirit of God used all that, when Moses had, and this is the context of when he says we're being transformed into the image of Christ. When Moses received the Ten Commandments, he spent time in the presence of God. When Moses removed his veil in the tent of meeting, after he had been in the presence of God and spoke with the Lord face to face, he experienced a physical transformation, and when he walked out, his face was actually luminescent. It glowed. At the same time, he underwent a sanctifying moral transformation in character and will when he was exposed to God's presence and revelation. Moses' temporary exposure to the glory of God worked a huge, mighty transformation in and upon him. And Paul then, using that, tells us in 2 Corinthians 3 that the ministry today of the Holy Spirit of God is even more transforming because our exposure isn't brief, but it is constant. It is continuous, without a veil. 
and more that that transformation is actually in reverse order. Moses, in the presence of God, changed from the outside, and then it went in. And from what Moses, first by effecting a moral transformation into God's image, as all of us are being transformed into the same image from one degree to another, the phrase are being transformed translates a participial phrase we get our word metamorphosis from and refers to then our progressive sanctification. That's what Paul is saying. We are, should be daily, being holier than we were a week ago. The Christian life is, and by the way, that's a great question, and that tells you where you are at tonight. Are you tonight at the closest walk, the holiest, if I could use that expression, in your relationship with Christ tonight? Or was there a time in your life when you were, if I could use the expression, more spiritual? Does that make sense? Are you closest tonight or the most God-conscious in your walk with the Lord now than you were a year, two years, five years ago. You ought to be. That's what Paul is saying. And that's kind of a challenge, isn't it? Believers' transformation, then, into the likeness of Christ was a frequent theme in Paul's writings. And so I'm raising this up to say this is, this is the kind of stuff that Paul wrote about all the time. That change, he said, is progressive so that willing exploit. And by the way, and let me just stop there for a moment. When people talk about the Apostle Paul, they often re- he is referred to as the Apostle to the Gentiles. That is not what Paul referred to himself as. Paul referred to himself as the minister of the New Covenant. You heard Doug Bookman a couple of weeks ago when he was preaching the communion service and he preached on the New Covenant. The New Covenant was to the Jews telling them they were struggling with sin in their lives because they were trying to live under the law and keep the law, but they had a hard heart. And in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, and Ezekiel 36, verses 25 and 26, God says, I'm going to take your stony heart and one day put a new heart in you, and that new heart is going to be my spirit. And this, that whole ministry of the Jesus going to heaven, and I will go, John 14, and if I go, I will send another, okay? The paracleto, the paraclete, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. And he uses the word, I will send another. And there's two ways of saying in the Greek, another. You can say heteros which means, and we get our word, well, I use the expression homosexuality or heterosexuality. It means other, completely different. Or I can send an allos, A-L-L-O-S, and that's what Jesus says. I'm going to leave and I'm going to send an allos, not a heteros, but an allos, another. Uses that Greek word to explain another versus the other one, meaning I'm going to send one just like me, only different. Exactly like me, but a little different. Meaning, where you see me, he will reside in you. Does that make sense? In other words, Paul said now after Pentecost, my ministry, my life, and he called himself then the minister of the new covenant, 2 Corinthians 3, to explain in his whole ministry wasn't to tell us how to do church. We have all these things like First, Second Timothy, Titus, and we think, well, this is how you conduct. No, no, he didn't write to give us a rule book and a policy manual 
He wrote, and God used him to tell us about the ministry of the Holy Spirit of God who now works in you so that we are a completely different people. His ministry. And with that in mind, in other words, as believers single-mindedly focus on the Scripture, they will see God's glory. Page 4, reflection. Now, notice this. They will see God's glory reflected in the face of Jesus and being transformed into His image by the powerful internal work of the Lord, the Spirit. And ultimately, at Christ's appearance, we will undergo a physical transformation into glory. Or as Paul would phrase it, we eagerly wait, notice this, for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory. And John wrote, we know that when He appears, what's the next five words say? We shall be like Him, because we shall see Him just as He is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him purifies Himself just as He is pure. Now, here's what we're going to do for the next few minutes, and then I will move us off of this. Where and the why? In this life, you and I are changing. We should be growing into something, maturity. Likewise, in the Christian life, we should be maturing into the image of Christ, which raises a question sometimes that we do not often ask. And and so I want to take just a slight caveat or a little bit of a rabbit trail for this evening and talk about something that raises a question, and what do we mean by the image of God? You ever thought about that? People say, well, what does the image of God mean? What is this? Why are we the only creature in all of God's creation that has the title pronounced over us, Imago Dei, the image of God. Who are we? Or better quit, what are we? What does it mean to be a spirit, a spirit being? How are we like God? After all, John 4 says God didn't have a body, or did He appear in body form? And the answer is, yeah. The incarnation, of course, Jesus Christ. But even prior to that, in the Christophanies of the Old Testament, to understand fully, notice, let's go a little bit deeper to what we must in this study of respectable sins fully understand something. We need to ask a few more questions. Can we be holy? Does God really expect that of me? After all, who does God think that we are that we can act like that? And what leads that causes me to ask another but an ultimate bedrock question. Just what is this image of God that the Bible talks about? Very few times that we actually get to study that, and I'd like to spend perhaps just a 10 minutes on it at most. And I've written almost all of this out so that if we don't finish through it, I can kind of skim across it because I want to get us to something Quickly, so I put some notes here that I've written this week for you to talk a little bit about this concept. We don't talk about it much in church, but let's talk about it for a few minutes. And what does it mean? How can we be spiritual beings and be in the image of God? I want to add a couple of things here. Since the fall in Genesis 3, you and I have been in serious trouble, or mankind has been. In other words, damnation, condemnation. Something was affected in Genesis 3. 
From now on, when you work, you will toil. When you have children, they'll, you'll be in childbirth. And, and things go on and on. But what happened that Adam and Eve had to be clothed, and they, they noticed something different. They were now, they could see nakedness, and God clothed them. What all went on? By the way, there's some fascinating studies. Daniel 12, 1 to 3, go back into Exodus, Psalm 8, verses 3 through 6, and we can go through the New Testament. When it's, and there's, there are many, many, many theologians, especially older theologians, but many today as well. And I was just reading, I actually have one book up here, I won't quote from it in that area, but Robert Pine, who taught at Dallas here just a few years ago when I was doing my doctorate degree, talks about that when we walked in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve did that. Our first parents were there. Um, There's a sense when you're in the presence of God, or as God created them, there was a sense of luminescence about them. You know what I mean by that? They glowed. Okay. And in the fall, that was lost. And in the future, that too gets restored. And so there's some interesting things in the Bible that talks about when you are into that image. Well, that's for another fascinating study, and it would be great to trace that through Scripture, and I can make a good case for why that discussion goes on today. I get your attention on that one. But uh, um, uh, ancient Jewish commentaries and other things all speak about that, and that's how even as we look down through, it said that um, Adam, when he was in the presence, and, and by the way, that's why when Satan appeared where it says that he appeared in the term translated serpent, we wonder, how come they wouldn't catch on, this snake talking to him? Because the word serpent in Hebrew is really the word shining one. And so he appeared. And by the way, the New Testament says he appears as an angel of what? Light. And so when he appeared to them, he appeared to them probably as a being who was a luminescent shining one. In other words, he kind of looked a little like God. And that's why he's called the great deceiver or liar. And they could associate one because there was a kind of a commonality there. Well, that's all for the future anyway. And glorification may result in that. And that would be kind of neat. And so then I wouldn't have to worry about hair in the future because all of us would be glowing, all right, like this light does off of here right now. They tell me when I walk across the pulpit in the main auditorium that this blue light that when, when the blue light, have you ever seen those, the lights that shine down from, because they're actually colored. They're not clear. They're, they're colored lights. And so when I'm walking around, it's kind of hard on the camera stuff because it actually casts a blue above. I throw off a blue light. I call it my halo, all right? And so, but um, in the future, some interesting things. The image of God. Let me just take a few minutes and talk about this, about you and I. What is the image of God, by the way, that we've lost, in a sense, or did we? Well, let's define it. It's never denied. Someone says, I know the Bible teaches it, and I suppose it's important, but I don't know what it means. If that is the way you're approaching humanity's creation in the image of God, don't be embarrassed. You're probably in the majority. You see, most students of the Word of God recognize that people have been made in God's image, and they might know that it is mentioned in the Bible's first reference to people in Genesis 1, 26 and 7, come, let us make man in our image. And they may even have used the concept to support the sanctity of life or the dignity of humanity when it comes to combating abortion. At the same time, even some of the most mature believers, and I can ask seminarians to explain what we mean by God's image. And the professionals, many of them, face the same problem. 
The image, what is man? Some deny any God basis for man. Man's merely the highest animal in the evolutionary scale, and so they dismiss being like God at all. Or, and that's what a non-believer would say. I believe that an image can be defined, and what do we mean by that? Out of all of God's creatures, only one creature man is said to be made in the image of God, the imago dei. What does it mean? It means that man is in the image of God, is like God, and that he represents God. When God says, let us make man in our image, comma, after our likeness, the meaning is that God plans to make a creature similar to himself. You see, the word image, tselem, and the Hebrew word for likeness, demut, refer to something that is similar but not identical to the thing it represents, kind of like a statue in a museum. These terms had real meaning to the original readers. In other words, they understood that in some way they were like God and they should represent Him. In other words, in Genesis 1.26, let us make man to be like us and to represent us. That's exactly what the Hebrew is trying to say. A little bit further. Because image and likeness had these meanings, Scripture doesn't go into deeper explanation. The fact that man is in the image of God means that man is like God in the following ways. We have an intellectual ability, a moral purity, a spiritual nature, and dominion over the earth. We are given creativity, the ability to make ethical choices, and immortality it should be. Such an explanation is unnecessary, not only because the terms had meanings, but also there's more to it than that. In fact, as we read the rest of Scripture, we realize that a full understanding of man's likeness to God would require a full understanding. Do you know why you can't exactly explain how are we just like God? Because we don't know fully everything about God. All right? Remember, when Adam lived 130 years, he became the father of a son of his own likeness, Demut. After his image, Salem, it says in Genesis 5.3. Seth was not identical to Adam, but he was like him in many ways as a son is like his father. Seth was like Adam. Similarly, every way in which man is like God is part of his being in the image and likeness of God. So I'm going to go a little further. The image of God has been defaced, but not erased. Look around. It's easy to wonder as we look at each other, God is like that person in some sense? How? You see, something's changed. Since man has sinned, he is certainly not as fully like God as he was. There's no doubt our moral purity has been lost, and the way we were as sinners doesn't reflect the character of God. Our intellect is corrupted by falsehood. Our speech no longer continually glorifies God, and our relations are most often governed by what's good for me rather than another. In every aspect of our life, somehow the image of God has been distorted, hasn't it? Go a little further. But even after the fall of man into sin, God still says man is in his image. James 3, 9, we are made in the similitude, the likeness of God. Down about six or eight paragraphs for sake of time where it says, where I put three asterisks, even though mankind has fallen, sin has defiled but not destroyed the image of God in mankind. How are we? Notice, after the fall then, we are still in God's image. We are still like God in a sense, and we still represent God, but the image of God in us is distorted. You could use the word deface. We are less fully like God than we were before the entrance of sin. We're not like Him Therefore, we cannot be in His presence. 
Does that make sense? There has to be a penalty removed, and we need to be clothed in righteousness. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look upon iniquity, Habakkuk 1.13. Something has to change that relationship. But how are we still in the image of God? What is it that God wants to transform us into? What is man, and what are we capable of doing and being? I'm going to take five minutes, read the next 16 propositions. There are several aspects, page 7, 8, and 9, of our existence that show us to be more like God than all the rest of creation. Animals do whatever they want, folks, whenever they want. God speaks differently. You be holy as I am holy. You be different. How is that? I want to talk just real quickly on a moral aspect, spiritual, mental, and then relational and physical. Just follow along real quickly. A little bit of theology here. Moral aspects. In other words, you and I, we are creatures who are morally accountable before God for our actions. Corresponding to that accountability, we have an inner sense of right and wrong. All human beings do. That sets us apart from animals who don't even think about the consequences or injustice or whatever. When we act according to God's moral standards, our likeness to God is reflected in behavior that is holy and righteous before Him. By contrast, our unlikeness to God is reflected whenever we sin. You see, we have not only physical bodies, but we have immaterial spirits for a spirit world adapted to that world, which means that we have a spiritual life that enables us to relate to God as persons so we can pray and praise Him and hear Him speaking His words to us. And connected to that, then, we have immortality. We will not cease to exist, but you and I, once we are born, will live forever. There's something unique about that. You see, we have an ability to reason, to think, to logically and to learn, and which sets us apart from every other creature in the animal kingdom. There are those who argue that animals can think, but I argue that they do not engage in abstract reasoning, folks. Listen, there is no such thing as the history of canine philosophy, for example. Nor have any animals since creation developed at all in their understanding of ethical problems or use of philosophical concepts. No group of chimpanzees will ever sit around a table arguing about the doctrine of the Trinity or the relative merits of Calvinism or Arminianism. In fact, even the, in developing physical and technical skills, we are far different from animals. Beavers still build the same old kinds of dams they have built for thousands of generations, and birds still build the same kind of nests, and bees still build the same kind of hives, but you and I continue to develop great skill and complexity and technology. I didn't write that paragraph. Wayne Grudem did. Pretty good, though, isn't it? You and I are different. You're capable of thinking, of doing, of being different. In our use of complex, abstract language sets us apart from animals. Notice, Grudem writes, I could tell my son when he was four years old to go and get the big red screwdriver from my workbench in the basement. Even if he had never seen it before, he could easily perform the task because he knew the meanings of go and of get and of beg and of red and of screwdriver, workbench and basement. He could have done the same for a small brown hammer or a black bucket or any dozens of other items that he perhaps had never seen before but could visualize when I described them in a few brief words. No chimpanzee, he's really picking on chimpanzees, isn't he, in all history has been able to perform such a task, a task that has not been learned through repetition with reward but is simply described in words. And yet a four-year-old human being can do this routinely and we think nothing of it. Now, why am I even saying, why is that important? Because God talks to you in what we call propositional revelation. 
meaning in word phrases he can communicate. That's why he gave us the convention or something known as language. So therefore, he says, come, let us reason together. And all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And God, 1 Corinthians 2, it says, no man has known the mind of the Spirit, save the Spirit that is in him. But God has taken his Spirit, and he has combined, and the term means it's an accounting term mathematically, he has combined his thoughts with the convention he called words, and so he can put his thoughts into word. And his Spirit then can guide men to write what God thinks into words. It's called inscripturation. The doctrine of inspiration, he works in a man. Inscripturation, the man writes. And then illumination, once salvation has taken place, he takes those same words when the Spirit lives in you and makes those words come alive. There's only one book like it on all earth in all time. And God then uses it so you and I can kind of connect with him. Is it kind of a mental telepathy? It's bigger than that. It's him convicting you, changing you, and the Spirit of God talks to you. I'm a little freaked out when people say, well, God is speaking to me. He doesn't do that. Well, as I pray, he speaks to me. He doesn't do that. There's no such thing as divine intuition. Does it make sense? He speaks to us through his word. That's it. And as we're going to grow holier and to have victory, how is that going to happen? We talk to him and ask him to guide us, to convict me, to show me, to reveal to me. And how will he do that? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Everything we're going to do, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God, woman of God, may be what? Perfect, thoroughly furnished. Everything you need to do to live this Christian life is there. But I'm looking for a secret. You already bought it. Spirit of God lives in you. You got saved. The Spirit of Christ dwells in you. And you paid a few dollars. <laughs> and you bought yourself a copy of God's mind. And everything you need to do for the rest of your life to live the Christian life is recorded here. Now, if that doesn't short-circuit your mind, I look at that and go, there's got to be more to it than that. That's when Jesus ran into that problem working with the Pharisees. You blind guides. You choke on a gnat because you endeavor to swallow a camel. You're causing these people to do volumes of things to seek righteousness. It's in the Word. My Word. Jesus would say, 
being God. Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. Make them holy in this. I am the way, the what? Truth. Our likeness to God. Notice, there are mental differences between human beings is that we have an awareness of the distant future, even an inward sense that we will live beyond the time of our physical death. Number 10, our likeness to God is also seen in our human creativity in areas such as art, music, literature, scientific technological inventiveness. It's also reflected in the delightful way in the play acting or the skits of our children and the skill reflected in cooking a meal, decorating of a home, planting of a flower bed or a garden, something that says I'm accomplishing. What is that? Why do, what is that about that? In the area of emotions, our likeness to God is seen in a large difference in degree and complexity of emotions. We're far different from the rest of creation. After watching my grandson's soccer game, I can simultaneously feel sad that his team lost, happy that he played well, proud that he was a good sport, thankful to God for giving me a grandson and giving me the joy of watching him grow up, joyful because of the song of praise that has been echoing in my head all afternoon, and anxious because we are going to be late for dinner. It is very doubtful that an animal experiences anything approaching this complexity of emotional feelings. Animals may have some sense of community, but number 12, nothing like what we do. 13, in marriage itself, we reflect the nature of God and the fact that as men and women, we have an equality and importance, but difference in the roles. Man is like God, and that's what we call the economical and ontological trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, ontologically, meaning in their essence, ontologically, this rail is made of wood, stands above, and I can give it its, this, abstract, this objective description. That's its ontology. And so in ontology, there's no difference between man and woman, male or female. We are equal ontologically in your marriage. Husband and wives, each knee will bow and everyone give an account to God. You are of equality, but there's something called economic, and that means in the structure, the Spirit glorifies, gives glory to the Son who gives glory to the Father. And God works that way, and it's in a marriage. The husband's going to give as headship and accountability. And where do we get that kind of a design? Because that's how the Trinity operates. Notice, physically, is there any sense in which our human bodies are also part of what it means to be in the image of God? Our physical bodies should in no way be taken to imply that God has a physical body. But there are some things in our bodies that God has made in these bodies and hung some things on our ears and put some eyes and He's put a a, a mouth. And why did He put that stuff on us? You see, our physical bodies give us the ability to see. And this is a God-like quality in that God Himself sees. Our ears give us the ability to hear, and this is a God-like quality and that God hears, hears our prayers. Our mouths give us the ability to speak. God speaks. Our sense of taste and touch and smell give us the ability to understand and enjoy, reflecting that, in fact, God himself understands and enjoys his creation. Something about what we are reflects in the character of God. Therefore, only man out of all creation is so like God that he can said to be in the image of God. And that image causes us to respect other human beings and respect for life even when they are fallen. You cannot take another person's life because James 3.9 says they're in the image of God. Now, with all that in mind, and I have to wrap it up here in the next two minutes, it is encouraging to turn to the New Testament and see that our redemption in Christ under the summary means that we can, even in this life, progressively grow into more and more likeness to God. We're being renewed in the knowledge. As we gain true understanding of God through God's Word, we begin to think more and more of the thoughts that God Himself thinks. 
In this way, we are renewed in knowledge, and we become more like God in our thinking. And as a result, we are being changed into His likeness from one degree of glory to another. And that's as we deal with these sins. Notice back to now an explanation, and I'm going to close with this. What do we intend to get across in this series as we deal with ten major respectable? They're not respectable. They're acceptable, sadly, sins. We are going to deal with how to become victorious or overcomers or holier than when we started the series, and that is known as sanctification. Progressive sanctification, then, is the continuous operation of the Spirit using the Word. It is the process of conforming believers to the image of Jesus. It's a lifelong process. Notice, man is never in this life fully free from sinful tendencies. So if you stumble occasionally, don't grow despondent. We're never free because while we are still in this body that used to sin prior to getting saved, we are a new creation, but we're still using these bodies. Sanctification, then, is not living totally without sin, but living with decreasing frequency of sin and decreasing awareness of sinfulness. The longer and the more you walk the Christian life, the easier you will find that you sometimes feel guilty or convicted, or I did that and should not have. Amen? And we become more conscious of that. Sanctification, by the way, is not something you muster up or go out and do. It's a work of the Spirit as He teaches and leads us in truth, and He guides us, and He enables then the production of the fruit of the Spirit. Notice, sanctification then is the work of God. It is a continuous, ongoing process. There are periods of rapid and slower growth, though. It shouldn't be slipping back where you constantly have to rededicate. But there are times, like a pine tree, which grows two weeks out of the year and then uses 50 weeks to solidify that new growth. You've seen that in a tree in your yard, haven't you? Pine tree, that brand new bright growth, and then for the next 50 weeks it'll solidify that. That often happens in our Christian life. There's these times when we make these, you came across new truths. Stephen's preaching something. You're reading something. You're studying something. You're in a ladies' Bible study, a men's Bible study. Wow! And then you take off and then, okay, then I have to work through this now and solidify that. And usually what you're going to find is that growth often corresponds to your surrender and obedience. And by the way, the efficient, the one who makes it effective growth is the Holy Spirit. Notice the verses. The instrumental agent, in other words, how he does this, what he uses is faith, hearing and heeding Scripture. Just as salvation is not of work, sanctification is not of human efforts. And by the way, it is as hard for a saved person to forsake human effort and yield to the Holy Spirit for growth as it is for an unsaved man to forsake works and trust in Christ for salvation. I think we forget that. Just because we're saved doesn't mean now we just sort of, well, we try to teach me what I need to do rather than just depend on the Word. It's an internal struggle. As we look at concepts of an old and new nature, the sinful nature or flesh is that remaining tendency to neglect or disobey God. Someone says, well, it's that anger. I just, it formerly held full sway and after conversion needs to be kept under control. Paul tells us we are to mortify or put to death sinful deeds, enslaved, but 
Notice, believers are not two people, but a one person who still has sinful tendencies. Sin is not in the physical body, but a remaining disposition of the heart and the desires of the soul. And though you are genuinely new, if any man be in Christ, he's a new, she's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, you have a newness. Though the life of the believer is not totally new, the new man is to grow in knowledge. Believers are to be continually being made new in their understanding and the renewing and learning of their minds. And you're to put to death the misdeeds of the body, to reckon them that I can be victorious. Christ died for these. We don't need to give in to this. Believers are to cleanse themselves then from all filthiness, from everything that contaminates, and you'll be in a battle day in and day out. Tom Schreiner, who spoke here, remember Dr. Schreiner, writes in his commentary, in encountering God's demands, we are still conscious of our wretchedness, be holy for I am holy, and inherent inability. The struggle with sin continues for believers because we live in the tension between the already, I'm a child of God, and the not yet, I'm not yet glorified. Christians, precisely because they have not yet experienced full liberation from sin, been taken out of here, we are conscious of a continuing presence of sin in their lives. We will struggle. We are conscious of it, and it haunts us. And you and I want hope, and God provides us hope and daily victory through the power of the Holy Spirit using His Word in our lives, which God provides and gives us direction. Now, folks, this series won't be easy. Trust it will be beneficial, and God will guide us through it and give us victory. Amen? That's our goal. Would you stand with me and have a word of prayer? Father, thank You for our time together this evening, the patience of the folks. And, Lord, we just jumped into the deep end of the pool. Thank You for bringing us back out on a shallower end. But there are some deep biblical truths. If you wanted us just to know how to get saved, you'd have given us a tract. But, Lord, you've given us this huge book. Thank you for doing it. Thank you that we can read it every day, all our lives. Father, we want to do your will. Nothing else, nothing less, but your will in our lives. So help us to be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds that we may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God in overcoming the things that beset us. And help us not to call them respectable sins in our daily lives because they nailed Jesus to a cross. And with that, we see how appalling and wretched they are in your sight. Give us victory because sin and the enemy have already been defeated. And we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. God bless you.